Our pop culture shows us how we think about money. So in the 50s, some of you might have sung along with Elvis, Money, honey, if you want to get along with me. In the 60s, the best things in life are free, but give me money. That's what I want. Money, 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 must be funny. The 70s, in the rich man's world with Abba. Or Pink Floyd. I don't want to do it. Money, it's a gas. Grab that cash in both hands and make a stash. Or in the 80s, with Madonna, we're living in a material world and I'm a material girl. Money's too tight to mention in that same decade for Simply Red. And more recently, I couldn't find a song for the 90s, funnily. Must have been a, everyone must have had a lot then. And more recently, I need a dollar, dollar, dollar. That's what I need. Money, we can't live without it. And so much of our lives are spent acquiring it. And so much of our culture is obsessed with it. We're going to spend the next three Sundays thinking about money, but talking about generosity, thinking biblically about our money and our material possessions and our contentment, thinking, not only thinking, but also helping us to act biblically in the stewardship of our money and our material possessions. I think if we lived as subsistent farmers in some village in Africa or Asia, I don't think we'd be having this series but we are a greedy people living in a greedy city as part of a greedy nation. Yet as Christians, we're called to be salt and light by our Lord Jesus. So we've got to think about how being disciples of Jesus in this culture might make us different and what are the challenges and how we should approach them. I want you to be content with less and generous with more. That, that's the challenges for us that is before us. Some of us are not content. Some of us are not generous. I want to call you to generosity as an expression of thankfulness to God for all he's done for us in our creation and in the Lord Jesus. Over these next three weeks, if you haven't felt confronted in some way, then we failed you. Today... I want to begin by reminding you that God is generous and provides all you need. I want to begin by looking at that Psalm 104 that Lee just brought to us on page 518. On the face of it, the psalm has nothing to do with money, but stand on the other side and it has everything to do with money. We love stories, don't we, of the self made man. This isn't working, Peter. Thank you. We love stories of the self-made man, stories of a person who comes from a very poor, deprived beginning, but through hard work and persistence builds something significant, usually a successful business and wealth. So up on the screen, there's the statue of the self-made man. Of course, it's from America because the Americans love some call it the myth of the self-made man. Critical uh, to those who champion the idea is that the person doesn't receive assistance from inherited wealth or a rich benefactor. But self-made men have their critics. and One of them is famous US Senator Elizabeth Warren. 
she's the person that uh, President Trump calls Pocahontas. They don't get on very well, particularly as she called for his being pulled down in the last day or so. Anyway, in 2011, she challenged the concept of the self-made man in a video that went viral and there was over a million uh, looks at her video. She wanted to challenge, she was responding to the claim that asking high wealth individuals to pay more tax was a form of class warfare. And this is what she said. There is nobody in this country who got rich on his own. Nobody. You built a factory out there, good for you. But I want to be clear, you moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. You didn't have to worry that marauding bands would come and seize everything at your factory and hire someone to protect against this because of the work of the rest of us. Now look, you build a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it, but part of the underlying social contract is that you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. I reckon God would have been nodding along with Elizabeth Warren because nobody and nothing in this world is self-made. It's all God-made. So verse 24 of Psalm 104, please have a look with me there, verse 24 how many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Psalm 104, uh, underlying Psalm 104, are those seven, six days of creation that Dave uh, was looking at with us in the family spot before. How many are your works? Uh, the psalmist, as you read through the psalm, marvels at how carefully planned and intricate creation is. There's the moon and the sun and the separation of the waters from covering the earth. The mountains uh, come out and then the, the waters still are used to make the grass for the cattle and the plants for the people to cultivate. So verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. And the psalmist praises God because of the great variety of creatures. that He mentions donkeys, birds, wild goats, sea creatures beyond number, cattle, lions, and other night-prowling beasts of the forest, and of course, humankind. All creation is dependent on our creator, for our existence and, verse 27, our ongoing existence. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. Our life. The next moment that we each will live in this building is from God. He's not chosen to take away our breath, our lives at this time. He gives us our food. He's ultimately behind all that we take for granted as we wander through our supermarkets. 
There is no self-made man or woman. We're all dependent on God for our lives and everything that sustains us. Which, of course, is why we are praying for rain in these drought times. God is generous to us, don't you see? So in recognition of that, we must, with the psalmist, do you see what the psalmist, what's the psalmist driven to as uh, he, or I think we think it's David, so I say he, as he considers creation and its wonder and our dependence on God for our continuing existence. The psalmist, verse 33, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Praise the Lord. If you're someone who never sings in church, be challenged by this. Your life, everything you have is because of our generous God and so praise the Lord. The psalmist models a great response to our great and generous God. Sing and praise God for his generosity to you in providing your life and everything you have. God is generous and provides all you need. So praise him for all you have. God's generosity also enables us to serve him. And that's our second point to see today. You've probably heard the saying... He who dies with the most toys wins. That philosophy of life is often credited to this man, American Malcolm Forbes, who grew the Forbes magazine publishing empire. Some say Frank Sinatra said it. Even if Malcolm Forbes wasn't the first one to come up with it, he did live close to that creed. He owned a private jet, scores of motorcycles, houses, yachts, a collection of special, unusually shaped hot air balloons, an extensive art collection, including, if you've seen those, Russian bejeweled eggs that were uh, made. There were only about 50 of them made. I'm not sure how to say the name Fabergé. No doubt that's wrong. Each of those eggs worth millions. He died when he was 70, but not before hosting a, a lavish 70th birthday in Morocco, for which he flew in 800 rich and famous friends and associates. It cost $2.5 million in 1989. Mm. He did have a lot of toys. He did feel like he'd won. Many in our society, of course, wouldn't have a life philosophy as crass as Malcolm Forbes. Many would include something about having good friends and relationships or happy family. But Jesus is different. I want to ask you to turn with me now in the Bibles back to Luke, back to page 895. Page 895 to Luke chapter 12. And actually right at the very bottom of the column on 894, the very last sentence... Of 8.9.4, Jesus says this, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And speaking his, to his disciples a little later, he puts it this way over in verse 23 on the next page. 
For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. If life is about more than food, clothes, possessions, what is it about Jesus? Well, verse 31, this is how Jesus puts it. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Here is Jesus' life philosophy. It's a philosophy as his disciples that we are to take on. And notice it's a philosophy that is both a command but it's accompanied by a promise. So first the command. Notice it there. Seek God's kingdom. In other words, serve God. God's kingdom is where God rules. So strive to live for God's kingdom by living godly lives appropriate for those who follow the King Jesus. By trying to help others to grow as kingdom disciples. Seek God's kingdom by trying to help other people join the kingdom and grow it. To seek the kingdom means to build the kingdom in your life as you increasingly follow the Lord and in the lives of others. Now if we all work together on the church vision as it's currently expressed in our draft, then up on the screen, we will be seeking the kingdom when we're sharing the gospel to all fresh water, helping people to encounter, believe and grow in Jesus. It would be a hopeless church vision if it didn't help us to be at this work of seeking his kingdom. That's the life philosophy. That's what we're meant to be doing. Jesus is aware, though, that our worries about material things can get in the way of us seeking the kingdom. If my priority is to seek the kingdom instead of material things, will I have enough can be the worry. And so, Jesus accompanies this command with a reassuring promise that the generous God will provide our material needs. I wanted to pick up with me Jesus' words in verse 29. Do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it. The pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is urging his disciples, like us, not to mirror those outside of the kingdom who run after. That's another word for seek, but earnestly seek. Who throw themselves into living for food, drink, clothes, and can I add, homes and holidays. Instead, our lives should prioritise serving our generous God and relying on his provision. And notice Jesus' evidence that God will provide your needs He cites the example of the birds who, verse 24, do not sow or reap, have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Isn't that right? Jesus also has the example of the flowers. They don't labour or spin, yet God makes them grow. They don't do anything. He makes them look impressive, even though they're only useful for a day. 
Well, if God does that for these short-lived flowers, then end of verse 28, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? It's a big promise Jesus is making, isn't it? That God will provide your needs as you seek to serve him, for he's a generous God. Isn't that an important promise? So far, Jesus hasn't said anything all that directly about how to use your money. He's challenged us to live for the kingdom and not just worry about establishing a really comfortable life here on earth, to trust that God will provide our needs. The challenge for you then of this might not be directly about money. Maybe it's about time. Maybe living more for the kingdom will mean you have less time for housework or a hobby or recreation. Is that a cost, Jesus, that have you bear, knowing that he'll provide your needs for life? I think so. Say you've got a chance for promotion at work, but no, this will mean that you can't get to church each week or you're going to get home so late that if you have a family, you'll not have time to read the Bible and pray with them. Well, what are you going to do with that opportunity? Will you choose to seek the world or seek the kingdom of God? This is a... Material is a challenge of who we're going to trust, isn't it? Of course, this teaching doesn't mean that we don't work. No, not for most. Even in this passage, Jesus recognises that people sow and reap. In the rest of the New Testament, we're taught to work so we'll not be a burden on others and so we can provide for the needs of those we're responsible for. Work is a gift from God, but it's not meant to be the means for us to build up a kingdom on earth at the expense of God's kingdom. If you're in retirement, how does Jesus' teaching affect you? How how will you seek his kingdom? Where can you give time to building up his kingdom? You may be at a stage of life where you can, in fact, financially give more because your needs are less, but maybe it's not so much finance but it's your time. There's a difference between living to just consume your assets in retirement and living to seek the kingdom of God. And retirees have to grapple with what that means. We all must grapple with what it'll look like for us to have as our priority seek the kingdom instead of having our heart set on this world, what we'll eat, drink, wear, and where we'll live, holiday and play. Because God is a generous God. He's given us so much. And we are to seek the extension of his kingdom so that his name will be honoured. And as we do it, we know he provides all our needs. Jesus moves on from challenging us to serve the generous God to teach us to put our hope in the generous God. So the last point is that God is generous and provides all your needs. So hope in him, not your possessions. At the end of Luke 12, Jesus reminds both his first century disciples and us in the 21st century that ultimately our hope is not for this world. So why live as if it's all about how much we accumulate and experience? In the end... He who dies with the most toys doesn't win. He just dies. 
And if he spent his life living for stuff and not serving God, then he'll be in for a hell of a time. An eternity cut off from his maker will never be offset by memories of lots of overseas trips to Morocco or anywhere else on earth. If you're a disciple of Jesus, hell isn't your ultimate destination. So why do we live as if it's this world where life will be best? Jesus reminds us of God's wonderful grace in giving us our forgiveness of sins through belief in Jesus and adopting us to the family when he soothingly says there in verse 32, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This generous God I keep talking about is our heavenly father who gave his son for us. In addition to all the other gifts, he loves us so much. Don't you think he'll look after you in this world as you do his work? The generous God, as your heavenly father, has given you a place in eternity. That means you've got a better inheritance than any on this earth you have received or you're yet to receive. So until you get there, put your hope in the generous God who's given you all you have. The generous God who is your heavenly father and cares for you. To put our hope in God and not the world, I reckon we need to cultivate our hearts that they're set on eternity more than earthly things. Our treasure is to be in heaven, Jesus says. So do you want to do that? Do you want to cultivate your heart so it's set more on eternity? I do. I want to have a heart that thinks of God's greatness before my weakness of Jesus' honour before my will, that yearns for the growth of the kingdom instead of more possessions and experiences, that wants eternity before earth. I want to have a heart that's set more on eternity than earthly things so I can find living and trusting God easier. So how do we do that? How do we do that? when everyone around us seems to be building bigger houses and driving newer cars and having more holidays. That's what's happening now in this suburb in the last 15 years since I've lived here. How do, we, how do we cultivate a heart that's set on eternity more than the stuff around us? How do we learn to not be dominated by possessions or things that come with them like comfort and idleness? I think Jesus has a simple command that will cultivate a heart set on eternity. It's not easy to put into practice necessarily, but it's simple in the same. Have a look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Before you worry, it's not all your possessions. Again, you're not to become a burden on others. But do you see it? Start giving more away and you grow in dependence on God. Start giving more away, and you put your hope in the generous God, not your possessions. Sell your possessions and give to the poor if you want to grow a heart that's devoted to God, set on eternity. The Apostle Paul had some good teaching about putting our hope in God and not possessions. In one of his letters to his co-worker, Timothy. I'm going to bring it up on screen as we come to a close. 
Timothy is working in Ephesus, seeking to build the church there. And Paul writes this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Put your hope in God. And notice again who that God is. It's the generous God who's given us all our needs that we're to put our hope in, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So praise him and serve him by doing good works of service here in Paul's words, including being generous and sharing our wealth. Put your hope in God and share your wealth. Jesus has promised he'll provide. So trust him and give something of what the generous God has given you away. Share it with the poor and needy. We at this church support a number of missions, Anglican aid, Anglicare. We also support missions to the spiritually needy through Anchor RE in the high schools and CMS, to just take a few examples. If you don't know who to give to, just ask me. Look on the church news. The details for giving to Anchor are there and BCA, if nothing else. I began this sermon by quoting lines from a number of songs from recent decades featuring money. I didn't quote my favourite, though, because it wasn't so much about wanting money. If God was an 80s pop singer, he might have liked these lines from a group called Transvision Vamp. I don't want your money, honey. I want your love. Ultimately, that's what this is all about. Do you love God and his kingdom more than money? You can't love both. As Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So give some away. Let me pray.